0: Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire, a podcast about the weird, wacky, and wonderful stories of French history and culture. I'm your host, Diana, and this week we're continuing our series on Tourist Season in Paris. With over 1% of the population of the Earth visiting each year, tourists have a broader impact on Paris than they do on just about anywhere else. Until now, we've talked about the impact of all these tourists on Paris. Tourism shapes the urban landscape determines which landmarks are worthy of protection, and above all, drives the economy. Today, however, we're going to dig deeper into the other side of this equation. How does Paris itself impact her tourists? And when you've spent so many decades centering your entire economy around tourists, what happens when they fail to show up? This week, We'll check out the symptoms of a very rare medical oddity and diagnose its repercussions for the future of France in our episode, Paris Syndrome. One more quick note before we begin. Make sure to stick around until the end of today's episode. I have some exciting news. Paris is a dream. If you're the world's most popular travel destination, however, that dream becomes, shall we say, exaggerated. We all know that Paris is really a byword for a certain experience, riding a bicycle along the Seine wearing a striped shirt and tucking a baguette under your arm, drinking a glass of wine in front of a café as the breeze ruffles the leaves of the trees above holding hands with your loved one as you cross over a bridge with the bells of Notre Dame tolling in the background, sitting on a bench, staring at a painting by Monet imagining the past. Supremely confident waiters carrying silver trays topped with the most exquisite cuisine you've ever eaten. Even experienced travelers fall into the trap of nostalgia. Whenever people ask me about Paris, my eyes tend to glaze over, as I remember the best macaron I ever ate, my favorite bookstore, and the glittering winter carnival on the Champs-Élysées. For most tourists, it's easy to overlook the fact that Paris is a real-life place, with its own flaws, contradictions, and inconveniences just like anywhere else on Earth. Paris is not some meticulously designed, flawlessly humming temple of human pleasure. That's located in Anaheim, California. It's called Disneyland. Paris is a city. Yet, for a few visitors, coming to this realization is more than they can bear. Each year, a tiny handful of visitors are admitted to Parisian hospitals in an acute condition. They feel strange, anxious, isolated, and depressed. They feel ignored and rejected, and other psychological ailments which may have been under control before spiral out of control within a few weeks of arriving in the city. These visitors are frequently young, they are usually female, and perhaps strangest of all, they are almost all Japanese first identified by the psychiatrist Hiroaki Ota, Paris syndrome is a unique mental health episode caused by the discrepancy between an idealized imaginary Paris in the minds of Japanese tourists and the grittier, complicated, real-life Paris they actually experience. According to Dr. Ota, The timid patients feel assaulted by the impatience of the French. Too much talk is vulgar, and the patients react violently to make themselves understood. French humor doesn't go over well either. It's all just too much. Where is the perfect Paris they've seen in magazines and in movies? This city, with its crowded metro trains and filthy sidewalks, doesn't look a thing like Amelie. Where are the high fashion models wearing Louis Vuitton on every street corner? They make fun of my French and my expressions, said one patient. They do not like me, said another. I feel ridiculous before them. Depression and anxiety spiral out of control. Before long, one out of four patients are exhibiting extreme behaviors, like refusing to go outdoors, refusing to speak to others, or even attempting suicide. As one psychologist wrote, Fragile travelers can lose their bearings when the idea they have of the country meets the reality of what they discover, it can provoke a crisis. Modern Paris lives, breathes, and serves tourism. Two years ago, one out of every 11 salaried Parisians worked in the tourism industry. Today. It's one out of every eight. 10 million international tourists pass through the city's 2,029 hotels each year, where they generate 4 billion euros in profits and contribute 69 million euros directly through tourist taxes. These numbers aren't even taking into account the 67,000 international students living in Paris. By every count, traditional tourism is the lifeblood of the city. Areas of city life which used to be locals only are now falling prey to the tourism trap as Paris orients herself to meet the demands of her visitors. 64,000 Parisian properties are now listed on Airbnb, following an extremely contentious and unfinished public debate. Paris is easily the biggest Airbnb hub outside the United States, even though over 30,000 Parisians themselves are homeless. Eighty-nine percent of tourists in Paris use the metro to get around, which is good for the environment, but not so good for a Parisian person's morning commute. And in order to reach the metro, tourists have to take planes, trains, and automobiles, all of which contribute enormous amounts of pollution into the air. One study predicted an 88% increase in greenhouse gas emissions from tourists alone by the year 2050. The city is investing massive funds to expand its metro service solely to help shuttle more and more people to and from the airports. In more concrete ways, tourism has shaped even the contours of the city itself. In the first part of this series, we saw the way 80 million tourists a year can destroy local landmarks, even by accident, as all those cumulative good luck rubs, kisses, padlocks, and footsteps wear down the fabric of the city. In the third part of this series, we learn that German and American armies often had up to 65,000 occupying soldiers stationed in Paris during World War II on a given day, which left the locals feeling resentful and squeezed out. When you consider that this year, the city of Paris will host at least 100,000 tourists on a given day, it's tempting to resent the intrusion of all these outsiders. By the end of this year, only one out of every seven humans to step foot inside Paris will actually live there. It's enough to drive any Parisian to say, Non, ça suffit, and dream of a Paris without tourists. But what would happen if their wish came true? What happens when a city which has been sculpted to suit the whims of tourists finds itself alone? Parisian tourism suffered a massive blow in late 2015, with the terrorist attacks at the Bataclan nightclub and the National Stadium of France devastating French tourism for nearly two years. Combined with the impact of strikes, additional attacks, and an enormous flood last June, France's scary headlines resulted in a $1.5 billion shortfall. We haven't recovered, said the Director of Tourism in Paris a year after the Bataclan attacks. The impact is lasting and completely unprecedented. Many small businesses are on their knees. In the six months following the attacks, visits to the Arc de Triomphe declined 35%. But of course, hotels took the hardest hit of all. Within 72 hours of the Bataclan attacks, Parisian hotels lost half a million euros. Within six months, they lost half a billion. The missing tourists weren't in town to spend money on food or souvenirs, of course, and top restaurants found themselves with empty waiting lists, or worse, empty seats. In the year following the Bataclan attacks, the number of foreign visitors to Paris fell by 8%. The Department of Tourism has been in crisis mode ever since. For the first time in 13 years, government officials focused squarely on French tourism, and they proposed spending 42 million euros to lure tourists back to town. Paris simply couldn't afford to lose them. The number of tourists who are diagnosed with Paris Syndrome each year is incredibly tiny, but it is consistent. According to one employee at the Japanese embassy in Paris, there are around 20 cases a year of the syndrome and it has been happening for several years. Paris Syndrome might be very, very rare, but it got me thinking, it got me thinking about the expectations of tourists, and whether a city like Paris can afford to ignore those expectations, or whether it's even possible to deliver on such expectations, especially in the long run. Right now, France's fastest growing source of tourists? China. Over 2 million Chinese tourists visit Paris each year, where they spend billions of dollars on Michelin star restaurants and luxury brands. As China's economy continues growing, these numbers are expected to skyrocket. Think about it this way. One out of every 10 tourists in the world is Chinese. But only 7% of the Chinese population has a passport. The economic potential of Chinese tourism is staggering, and Paris is counting on it. The city of Paris aims to attract 100 million foreign visitors in 2020, and for those of you doing the math at home, that's 20 million more visitors than they currently get. A quarter of those new visitors are expected to come from China. But first, Paris needs to convince them to come. It's little surprise that where wealth goes, theft follows. Pickpocketing, armed robbery, and outright assaults against Chinese tourists are all on the rise. Think about Kim Kardashian's armed robbery, an extremely wealthy woman held up at gunpoint for her jewels and money in a very sophisticated attack. If crime syndicates are willing to pull that kind of attack against someone with international celebrity status and a million paparazzi hanging out outside, imagine how openly criminals will target wealthy tourists who aren't in the public's eye. And of course, it's not as though every Chinese tourist is a millionaire walking around in Christian Dior sunglasses. But criminals aren't that savvy. Last year, No fewer than 27 Chinese tourists were attacked and sprayed with tear gas as they boarded a bus. The takeaway? About 9,000 euros. And of course, since these jerks probably aren't known for their racial sensitivity and cultural discernment, they're often attacking people who aren't even Chinese tourists at all. For example, Six Chinese students studying winemaking were mugged in Bordeaux in 2014, sparking outcry from the Chinese government itself. Last year, a 49-year-old textile designer from a Parisian suburb died following a five-day coma after he'd been ambushed and robbed by three men. His death sparked a protest which drew 13,000 people to a rally in the heart of Paris. Only a few months ago, French police killed a Chinese man, and the subsequent demonstrations resulted in three injured police officers and 35 arrests. It would be little surprise if Chinese tourists began looking elsewhere for what may be a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to visit Europe. If anyone should be thrown into a tailspin from the difference between expectations and reality, you'd think Chinese tourists would be suffering from Paris Syndrome most of all. And yet... After the attacks on the Bataclan, the floods, and the strikes sent shockwaves through the tourism industry of Paris, after the restaurants were trying to figure out how to stay open, and the hotels were trying to figure out how to keep the lights on, when it seemed like the whole world was beginning to suffer from a case of Paris syndrome, the Chinese returned. American and Chinese tourists were the first to return to Paris after the attacks, according to the Paris Tourism Office's monthly economic report. In fact, there were more of them visiting than ever. 40% more Chinese tourists visited Paris in the December after the Bataclan attacks than they did in the December before the attacks. In fact, Despite the attacks of 2015, that year marked the first time that tourists from China topped the 2 million mark. Considering that tourism from other European countries still hasn't completely recovered to pre-Bataclan levels, it's reasonable to think that Chinese tourism is keeping the industry going everyone knows that too much good press results in backlash. Whether it's cupcake shops or Beyonce, eventually people get sick of hearing how amazing something is, and the reality just can't possibly live up to the hype anymore. Paris is a beautiful city with a wondrous history and a million tiny little charms. But it still suffers from crime, overcrowding, pollution, and all the other hazards of city living. As one Chinese woman said to the New York Times, for the Chinese, France has always been romantic, mysterious, and desirable. We have been told that God lives in France. As the head researcher at the Paris Tourism Office notes, travelers who are unprepared watch movies like Amelie, they think all Parisians carry Louis Vuitton purses and smell like Dior. They don't know about the working class suburbs, the overworked waiters, the grittier parts of the city. Paris is not a museum. People are busy, they are stressed, they are living their lives. In the last few years, Parisian tourism has been reaching fever pitch in numbers as well as emotions. If there are six times more tourists in your city than there are residents, is your city really yours anymore? If you can't fit on a metro car during your morning commute, or visit your favorite museum, or eat at your favorite restaurant because tourists from out of town are taking up every spot, is Paris truly a city or is it a glorified theme park? If Paris wants to reach 100 million tourists by 2020, city officials need to make sure that their plan is sustainable, both for the physical architecture of the city and for the mental health of its citizens. But as the catastrophes of the past few years have reminded us, Paris can't turn back now. Tourism is the lifeblood of the capital, And across centuries of travel, the tourists themselves have shaped the city into something unique, something inseparable, something romantic and almost mythological in the global imagination. It used to be there were waves of English tourists, like Henry James. Then the Americans came. Ernest Hemingway was a tourist when he first arrived. Josephine Baker was a tourist as she danced her way through her first shows. These days, Chinese artists, poets, writers, and musicians are all contributing to the glory of the city. The writer, Gao Qingjian, first set foot in Paris in 1987 seeking political asylum in a city famous for its expat writers. He now lives in Paris, having received French citizenship and the Nobel Prize. Qigang Chen, one of the world's greatest living composers, moved from Shanghai to Paris in 1984 and recently received France's most prestigious artistic award. Thomas Jefferson, Vincent van Gogh, Oscar Wilde, Pablo Picasso, Marie Curie, the designer, Kinzo Takata, The writer James Baldwin, all of them were tourists the first time they set foot in Paris. Yet something of that romance, that mystery, that mythology captured their imaginations. For every tourist who returns home dazed and confused, disillusioned by the reality of Paris, let down by the truth, there are many more who fall in love with what they see. Whether they return again and again, or simply enjoy a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience, the memories of Paris still cause most of the world to sigh and pick up a bottle of wine on the way home to relive the magic. It's impossible to know whether Parisian tourism is sustainable at this extreme level and city officials would do well to develop a backup plan for the city's economy in the long term. But for those of us who have made the trip, the memories live on. And we know, deep down, we'll always have Paris. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. This episode concludes my series on the history of tourism just in time. For those of you sitting next to a calendar, a certain event is around the corner. That's right, it's the show's birthday! This Bastille Day marks the show's first anniversary and I want to celebrate with all of you. First, between now and Bastille Day, that's July 14th by the way, let's dig deeper into some of our previous episodes. Do you have any lingering questions? Do you want to learn more about a particular subject that we covered on the show? Did I mention something offhand and you were like, wait, hold up, tell me more about that? Just wondering what I think about some aspect of French culture or history, or want a book or a restaurant recommendation? I'll be answering selected questions from all of you on our anniversary episode, so ask away you can send me questions via the show's website at www.thelandofdesire.com by sending me a tweet or by messaging or commenting on the show's Facebook page. Speaking of Facebook, this brings me to the second part of our celebration. I'm having a giveaway. Take a moment to like The Land of Desire on Facebook and share the page with your friends online. You could tell your network about a favorite episode or something you learned from the show, or just say, hey guys, check out this awesome podcast. If you don't use Facebook, you can also participate by writing a review on the iTunes store and letting me know which review is yours, by sharing on Tumblr, on Twitter, on Reddit, or even just sending emails to friends and family and send me some kind of proof that you're spreading the word to the rest of the world. Anybody who does so, between now and our anniversary on July 14th, will be eligible to receive a token of my appreciation. I can't say what the lucky winner will receive, but you can bet it will be très French. I can't wait to celebrate with all of you soon. So until next time, au revoir.